Our scripture set on yet. There we go. I think we got the wrong mic on, but <laughs> there we go. All right. Uh, if you would like to follow along in your copy of the scriptures, we are reading John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. If you have a copy of the Bible from the back there, it's page 901, 901. In this particular passage, in this context, um, Jesus is gathered with his disciples in the upper room for the last supper that he will have with them before he is crucified. Satan has already entered into the heart of Judas to betray him. Jesus has already taken to himself the... uh, the servant's position of washing the disciples' feet. And he's already told Peter that he will deny him, that Peter will deny Jesus three times. And after that, we read these words from John chapter 14, verses 1 through 6. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not even we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Note to self, do not talk on the microphone backstage because people can sometimes hear you out here. I don't know how long it'll take me to learn that. Well, maybe there's nothing more offensive to our culture than one of the verses that Larry just read for us. John fourteen six. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The claim that Jesus is the only way to God is incredibly offensive. One person wrote about this claim, quote, how could there be just one true faith? It's arrogant to say that your religion is superior and try to convert everyone else to it. Surely all the religions are equally good and valid for meeting the needs of their particular followers, end quote. Another person said, quote, religious exclusivity isn't just narrow, it's dangerous. Religion has led to untold strife, division, and conflict. It may be the greatest enemy of peace in the world. If Christians continue to insist that they have the truth, and if other religions do this as well, the world will never know peace. Do Christians really believe that all those, that all those people who don't believe in Jesus are condemned? How narrow-minded is that? Isn't it arrogant for Christians to claim that they have the sole grasp on ultimate reality? 
Who can know the truth about something so vast and mysterious as God? Isn't it better to just acknowledge that we're all trying to do the best we can? Aren't all religions basically the same? I mean, don't all roads lead to the same destination? We're just all taking different paths to get there? Shouldn't we say that God's too big to be confined to one religion? Aren't all our beliefs culturally conditioned anyway? Aren't we Christians because we grew up in a somewhat Christian culture? In our diverse and pluralistic world, don't we need to find ways to try to unite people to faith? Isn't religion the cause of deep conflict in the world? I mean, don't we need to be more inclusive of differing beliefs? Why be so judgmental, so intolerant, so bigoted, so close-minded, and so mean-spirited? You could turn on the television and hear that commentary, right? Well, this week we come to objection number three in our summer sermon series called Skeptic. We're trying to answer ten frequent objections to the Christian faith. And the, the objection that we take up this morning is a very common one. There are many paths to God, not just one. So the objection goes. What I want to do this morning, though, is come at the exclusivity of the gospel, namely the the claim by Jesus himself that he is the only way. I want to come at that from a somewhat unique, maybe, I I wouldn't say unique, but maybe different perspective than what we usually think about. And here's what I want to do. I want to to talk about why the claim from Jesus himself that that he's the only way is reasonable, that it's inclusive, and that it's merciful. Those are the three points I want to make about Jesus' claim to be the only way to God. That it's reasonable, that it's inclusive, and that it's merciful. None of which our culture thinks about when they think about Jesus' claim to be the only way to God. So let's take up number one, that Christ the only way is reasonable. I mean, here's the here's the first point, right? Christians could rightly be charged with being unreasonable if they believe that Jesus was the only way because that's what they think. But Christians don't think that Jesus is that way because they want to think it's that way. We don't just think Jesus is the only way because that's the way Christians think. We think that way because that's what Jesus taught. We think that way because we have a master who taught us to think that way. So if anyone should be called arrogant, bigoted, or mean-spirited, it's Jesus, not his followers. Because he's the one who told people to believe that. He's the one that people have a problem with. They should not have a problem first and foremost with Jesus' people for teaching exclusivity, but Jesus himself who taught it. John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's a direct quote from Jesus' mouth. And unless you believe that the Bible is wrong, which we already talked about that objection, then that's that's what he said. Acts 4, 12, uh, a text that Jonathan concluded in his prayer right before... We did our scripture reading. The apostles just are teaching what Jesus taught them. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. For the most part, this objection that Christians are being unreasonable when they claim that Jesus is the only way comes from a popular illustration of the elephant and the blind man. You ever seen this illustration before? 
If you haven't, let me explain it. It's actually from a poem that's been made into an illustration. But the poem is about six men living in the fake country called Indostan. And in this country, these men are all blind and they are all feeling different parts of an elephant. And they're describing what they feel. One man is, has his hands up against the side of the elephant and he says, it's, a, it's, like, it's like a wall. An elephant's like a wall. They've never seen an elephant before. But they're feeling, it's like a big wall. Then one man has his hand on the tusk and he says, it's like a spear. And another man has his hand on the trunk and it's like a snake and one on the leg and it's like a tree and one on the ear and it's like a, he, it's like a fan and one's on the tail and it's like a rope. So they're all touching the same thing and they're all describing it in different ways. And here's how the poem concludes. And so these men of Indostan disputed loud and strong, each in his own opinion, exceeding swift and strong. Though each was partly right and all were in the wrong, so oft in theologic wars the disputants, I ween, rail on in utter ignorance of what each other mean and prate about an elephant not one of them has seen. So aren't we all just blind men from Indostan investigating the elephant? I mean, we're all just trying to feel our way toward God and we're describing him in ways that we experience. There's a couple problems with this illustration respectfully submitted to you. The first problem with this illustration is it only works if there is one real objective truth. Namely, there's an elephant that exists. So the story cannot be used, which it's often used, to teach relativism. That is, we all have an idea of objective truth, but it doesn't necessarily exist. Because the existence of truth, namely the real elephant, is what gives the story its point. So it can't be used to just teach that we're all trying to find a truth that's not really out there. Second, the illustration does not teach that we can all be right about our interpretations of God. Since all those guys are wrong. They're all wrong about what the elephant is in its essence. Third and finally, this illustration only works if someone can actually see the elephant. Right? The only person who can criticize the blind men for their partial perceptions is someone who sees the whole truth, who in this story is the person giving the illustration. And in that way, the illustration actually backfires. Here's why. Because the appearance of humility and claiming that the truth is greater than any, any one of us can grasp is actually an arrogant claim that they are the ones who can see the whole and know it's an elephant. They are, in fact, claiming a kind of knowledge that they claim no one has. And that that knowledge that they possess, that it really is an elephant, is superior to the others. So the writer of the illustration knows what is absolutely true, where what everybody else sees is just partially true. One writer says the following, The only way you can know that all religions only see part of the truth is to assume that you have the whole truth, which is the very thing you say no one has. So ask this question. I ask this question, maybe you're skeptical and you think, see, you see the illustration for what it is and you say, yeah, that's, that's true. We're all just groping for 
the elephant and, and we're trying to describe it in different ways. If God's the elephant and we're just feeling different parts of him and all religions have a little bit of truth in them and we're all just trying to get to God. Let me ask you this question. What is this absolute vantage point that you have which you claim to be able to relativize all the claims of different scriptures and religions to make? When you say that no one has a superior take on spiritual reality, is that not itself a superior take on religious reality? And when you say no one should try to convert others to their view of spiritual reality, is that not a view of spiritual reality which you're trying to convert others to? See, there is no way for you to know that all religions are equal unless you claim to have the kind of knowledge that no one has. It is no more narrow, get this, it is no more narrow to claim that one religion is right than to claim that all religions are equal. We are all exclusive in our beliefs about religion just in different ways. That's why I say it's reasonable to say that Christ is the only way because you have a view of spiritual reality which you're trying to convert others to, which you claim is the only way. Namely, that there are multiple ways. Everyone operates out of some narrative identity, whether it's thought through or not. All who say you ought not to do this or you shouldn't do that are speaking from a moral and religious position. Although many continue to call for the exclusion of religious beliefs from the public square, like you'll hear on any news outlet, and we need to take all religious discussion out of the public square, privatize it, keep it to yourself, keep it in your homes, keep it in your churches. But here's the problem. That's a religious call. They are calling us to do something based upon their religion, which is individualism. That's a religious move. Don't be duped. By thinking that's not exclusive, that's an exclusive truth claim that they're making. That's very arrogant. Garbed in this wonderful clothing of peace, which it's not. It's a very divisive statement to make. And to call the entire country to submit to it. Because the elites have spoken. This comes up in lots of other ways. It's not necessarily always spoken of directly like that. Another way this is often spoken of is that people who claim that all religions basically teach the same thing. Have you heard this objection? This is a frequent objection. The problem with that objection, though, is that the the adherents and believers of those religions don't believe that. It's only the secularists who teach that. Not the people who actually believe the religion... Muslims know that they differ significantly with Christians on some very fundamental matters, namely, who is Jesus Christ? Buddhists and Jews have a radically different understanding of the nature of God than Christians do. Yet the pluralists claim to know better in saying that all religions really teach the same thing. They are putting themselves above everybody else, claiming to see what those poor, blind religious people can't see. Now, who's the arrogant one? Is that fair? Or what about the cultural argument? Is it really true that no one can know the truth because our beliefs are molded by the culture we're part of? Oh, you grew up in a Christian home. That's why you're a Christian. You grew up in a Western country. That's why you believe Western ideas about religion. 
Here's what one philosopher says in response to that objection. He says, quote, For suppose we concede that if I had been born of Muslim parents in Morocco rather than Christian parents in Michigan, my beliefs would have been quite different. But here's the problem. The same goes for the pluralist. Pluralism, the idea that all religions are equal and we all, all there are many paths to God, isn't and hasn't been widely popular in the world at large. If the pluralist had been born in Madagascar or medieval France, he probably wouldn't have been a pluralist. Does it follow then that he shouldn't be a pluralist or that his pluralist beliefs are produced in him by an unreliable belief process producing process? In other words, this. How can he say all claims about religion are historically conditioned except the one I am making right now? This this argument about religion being culturally conditioned, I'm making that as an exclusive claim that's not historically conditioned. No, it's ridiculous. It's just it's self-defeating. It doesn't make it doesn't argue any stronger for the point that they're trying to make. So I hope you understand under this first point that it's entirely reasonable to make exclusive truth claims for because frankly there isn't anything as a non-exclusive truth claim. So it's entirely just as reasonable for Christians to say Jesus is the only way as for the seculars to say there are lots of different ways. Those are equally reasonable. Maybe not equally reasonable. It depends on the source of your revelation. I would actually say that Jesus' perspective on the whole issue as the God-man, God incarnate, can see the whole elephant. He knows what the universe is all about. He made it. So I'm going to take the creator of the universe's interpretation of life over This person who was created by him and lives in rebellion against him. So that's the first point. Christ the only way is reasonable. Second point, Christ the only way is inclusive. Now that sounds like an oxymoron. That sounds like a contradiction. How can you say Christ the only way is inclusive? That feels so arrogant and controlling and fear-based for you to make that claim that Christ is the only way. But as we've seen, all of us have fundamental, unprovable faith commitments that we think are superior to those of others. All of us are operating with those in place. Everybody has a take on spiritual reality, which is based on a set of assumptions. We'll call it faith, because that's what it is. And everybody thinks their view is better, and that if people adopted it, the world would be a better place. Since everyone has a set of exclusive beliefs, the real issue in which is which set of inclu- exclusive beliefs tend to produce the most loving, inclusive, reconciling, peaceful behavior among their followers. In other words, think about this. What if Jesus' way is the most inclusive way? Think about that. What if Jesus' way is the most inclusive way? Let me give you a historical example of why I think it is, not just a biblical example. We can talk about those, too. But let me give you a historical example. You know, one of the great paradoxes in history is that when Christianity began to grow in the early days among the Greek and the Roman empires, the Greeks and the Romans had what appeared to be a very inclusive theology operating in their countries. They said, everyone has their own God. You've got your God. I've got my God. They got their God. There's no God for everyone. And then along come these Christians claiming Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And that seems so exclusive. But what did that theological claim produce? It produced the most inclusive group of people imaginable. 
Greeks and Romans didn't mix rich and poor. The Christians did. Jews didn't mix races. Christians did. Why would such an exclusive belief create such an inclusive community? Because what Jesus did on the cross was love his enemies and reconcile people to God by what he did out of sheer grace and not by anything that those people did for him. So they had no grounds to claim that they were better than anybody. And when Jesus' followers took this message into the center of their hearts and his love for them began to change them from the inside out, it takes you to a place that you can't get with other belief systems. Namely, if you take secularism into the center of your life, you will feel superior to other people as a secularist. If you take moralism into the center of your life, you'll feel superior to others as a moralist. But if you take Christ into the center of your life, you will love and serve those who who are hostile toward you because Jesus loved and served you when you were hostile toward him. Tim Keller says, why would such an exclusive belief system lead to behavior that was so open to others? It was because Christians had within their belief system the strongest possible resource of practicing sacrificial service, generosity, and peacemaking. At the very heart of reality for Christians was a man who died for his enemies, prayed for their forgiveness. And reflection on this would only radically produce in them a different way of dealing with those who were different from them. Namely, to treat them with patience and love, respect, and forgiveness. This was also played out in another historical example, the letter to Diognetus. This was an epistle that was written in the second century as an, uh, as an attempt to describe what life was like for the Christians to a, an official who was not necessarily very familiar with Christians and what effect they were having on people, but was a little bit probably skeptical about what was going on. So a letter is written to Diognetus to explain this. And here's what this letter writes. This is a second century document translated into English, and it says the following in describing what effect Christians were having on the very pluralistic society says, quote, Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. With regard to dress, food and manner of life in general, they follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it is Greek or foreign. And yet there's something extraordinary about their lives. They play their full role as citizens but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Obedient to the laws, they yet live on a level that transcends the law. Christians love all men, but all men persecute them. They're attacked by the Jews as aliens. They're persecuted by the Greeks, yet no one can explain the reason for this hatred. To speak in general terms, we say that the Christian is to the world what the soul is to the body. As the soul is present in every part of the body while remaining distinct from it, so Christians are found in all the cities of the world but cannot be identified with the world. Similarly, the world hates the Christians, not because they've done it any wrong, but because they're opposed to its enjoyments. Christians love those who hate them, just as the soul loves the body and all its members despite the body's hatred. It's by the soul enclosed within the body that the body is held together. And similarly, it's by the Christians detained in the world as in a prison that the world is held together. So contrary to what many think that this, this 
belief system of the Christians that they that they have this exclusive claim that Jesus is going to create this radical, rebellious faction that's going to destroy society as we know it. It actually held it together. I mean, our, our Western culture is largely held together because people were Christians that founded this country. I mean, we rant and rail. Go live in some countries that have had zero Christian influence and tell me that pluralism has not wreaked havoc or that false religion has. In fact, this is just what Paul taught Timothy, told Timothy, to teach to the churches. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 through 6, we read this. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. That sounds like a really radical idea, doesn't it? Be thankful for everybody. Pray for them. (laughs) Boy, that's subversive. Sounds like they're going to wreck culture. Number two, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead, here's what the Christians want, lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men. Stop there. You've got this exclusive claim in verse 5. There is one God. There is one mediator between God and man. And Paul uses it as a justification for evangelism. And love. And prayer. And sweetness. And dignity. And peace. See, Christianity doesn't work that way. It doesn't work like false religion. We have a God who left heaven to come to earth to serve, submit, die, for us, for our sins in our place. That, that is a radically different fundamental to have as part of your core identity. And what Paul had, what Paul says here to Timothy is look, yes, there is one God. There is only one mediator between God and men. But don't think that's going to produce some sort of lawless life that's going to overturn society. No, it's going to hold society together. We're going to pray for kings and all those who are in high positions so that we might live a peaceful and godly life that the gospel might advance and we can share this good news with everybody who would receive it. We want to tell everybody that there's a way that you can be reconciled to God. God loves you. He desires to save you. He wants you to come to a knowledge of the truth. There is one truth. Jesus dying in our place, giving himself, like verse 6 says, as a ransom. For us, to buy us out of, off the slave market of sin and bring us into the family of God. So what I want you to see from 1 Timothy 2 is that there is no contradiction between the exclusive truth claims of Christianity and tolerance and love. Because it's right there, it's both. It's right there in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verses 1 through 6. Speaking of tolerance, you know, many in our postmodern world are weary of claims to exclusive truth. I've already gone over that before. But the gospel declares that the one who claims to be the truth, namely Jesus, is the same one who dies in weakness on the cross. So therefore, the will of Jesus is a will that's not oppressive. He's no dictator out to get us. He loves us with a love that we can never, ever fully understand. And the gospel gives us the basis for true tolerance in a pluralistic society. Because the same tolerance that Jesus himself demonstrated when he prayed for those who opposed him on the cross, even nailed him to the cross, the same dignity 
that he extends to human beings? Yes, we seek to persuade, just like everybody does. Yes, we will never impose our beliefs on others, for, for the gospel must be freely received by a person. You can't force a person to believe the gospel. So why would Christians try to do it? In our proclamation of the truth of the gospel, we are humble followers of a crucified king. And that following of a true, of a crucified king yields a true tolerance toward all people. Tolerance rightly understood. We're called to display the same gracious love toward others that we have received in Christ. Christ has freely loved us, not based on anything we've done for him. Therefore, we love others, not based upon anything they can do for us. At least that's the way it should be. But alas, we are, like Jesus said, we are sinners. And therefore, we are imperfect representations of Jesus. We'll talk about that more in a couple of weeks when we come to the charge of Christians being hypocrites. So that's, a, that's the first two points. So Christianity is an inclusive, exclusive way. Christianity is a very reasonable way, even though it's charged with being unreasonable. And finally, third, and finally, Finally, third, and finally, that makes no sense. It's a merciful way. It's a merciful way. Why do I say that? You know, some people in our in our culture will say, I can't believe in a God who is so narrow-minded as to provide only one way of salvation. I mean, if he were a great God, he would give us options. You know? Isn't life better with options? Let me just throw a story in front of you and see what you think about it. I want you to think for a second with me about a God who doesn't deserve to give us a way, much less the fact that he has provided one. Suppose for a minute that there's a God who is altogether holy and altogether righteous. And suppose that God freely creates mankind and gives to them the gift of life. Suppose then that he creates his creatures in this ideal setting of paradise and he gives them freedom to participate in all the glories of the created order. But he imposes one small restriction upon them and he warns them that if they violate that restriction, they will die. Would such a God have the right to impose such a restriction with the penalty of the, of the forfeiture of the gift of life if his authority is violated? Is that okay for that God to do? Suppose then that there is no just cause for the rebellion of these creatures and the, these ungrateful creatures disobey the restriction the moment God's back is turned. And suppose that when he discovered their violation, instead of killing them, he redeems them. And then suppose that the descendants of these first sinners broadly and widely increased their disobedience and hostility toward their creator to the point that the whole world became rebellious to God and that each person was doing what was right in their own eyes. Suppose then that God will determine to redeem these people and freely give special gifts to one nation of people in order that through them the whole world would be blessed. And then suppose that that God delivered this people from poverty and enslavement to a ruthless Egyptian pharaoh. 
And then suppose that this privileged nation, as soon as it was liberated, rose up in further rebellion against its Redeemer, and they took his law and they violated it consistently. Suppose then that that God, still intent upon redeeming this people, sent specially endowed messengers called prophets to plead with these people to return to their God. Suppose then that the people killed the prophets who were trying to bring them back to the God who made them and redeemed them. And suppose this people mocked the message of the prophets and they began to worship false gods of stone and things fashioned by their own hands. And suppose these people invented religions that were contrary to the truth of the real God and worshiped creatures rather than the creator. Then suppose that in an ultimate act of redemption, God himself became incarnate in the person of his son. He became a human being. And suppose that this son came into the world not to condemn the world, but to redeem the world. But suppose this son of God was rejected, slandered, mocked, tortured, and murdered. Yet suppose that God accepted the murder of his own son as punishment for the sins of the very people who murdered him. And then suppose that this God offered to his son's murderers total amnesty, complete forgiveness, transcendent peace that comes with the cleansing of all guilt, victory over death, and the gift of eternal light with complete blessedness and joy forever. Suppose that this God gave these people as a free gift the promise of a a future life that would be without pain, without sickness, without death, and without tears. Suppose that God said to these people, there is one thing that I demand. I demand that you honor my only begotten Son and that you worship and serve Him alone. Suppose God did all that. Would you be willing to say to Him, God, that's not fair. You haven't done enough. If man has in fact committed cosmic treason against God, what reason could we possibly have that God would provide any access to redemption? In light of the universal rebellion against God, which has marked this planet for millennia, The issue is not why is there only one way. The issue is why is there one way at all? Why does God with patience and love give you breath and life and you rebel and sin against Him every day of your life? And He preserves you and He blesses you and He clothes you and He feeds you and He takes care of you and He says, worship my Son who has laid His life down for you. He has provided the, the, it's mercy. And we have the audacity to stand in his face as a culture and say, God, give us more ways. That is an affront to his son, who is the jewel of heaven and will be the object of worship 10 trillion millennia from now. The fact that he has provided a way should make us fall down on our face in utter amazement that we have been treated with such condescension and grace by God. We don't deserve it. And yet the story of the Bible is page after page of God treating his enemies with profound compassion. You can't read the Bible and say, this is a narrow God. 
Read the Bible. This is a love-soaked book. On every single page is God's mercy toward a rebellious, hostile, disobedient, sinful, idolatrous people. And the fact that he would choose by his grace to save a multitude, a multitude that no man can number. It makes no sense. It makes no sense. I should be in hell forever. I should not be charged with being called by God to preach his word to a mass of people called a church, which is made up of of hundreds of redeemed people in this room. The fact that he would not only save me, but then give me the privilege to tell others about what he has done. And he's given that same privilege to you, whether you're, quote, called into full-time ministry or not. We're called to make known his excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And when we get our hearts around that and we realize, God, you have treated me so kindly. I don't know why God has not given us five saviors or 15 religious ways to satisfy him. But my greater question is, why does he bother to redeem a world that universally rejects him? That's the greatest question in my mind. That's the greatest question in the universe. Why does God continually tolerate, and not just tolerate, bless? But know that this way that God has provided is exclusively through Jesus Christ. We sang it three times over this morning. We sang, you alone can rescue. We sang, in Christ alone my hope is found. We sang nothing but the blood of Jesus. And we sang that on purpose Because we know that Jesus alone can save. There is no other way. And it's a merciful way. Here's what Jesus said. Matthew 11, 27. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father, God, except the Son of God. And those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. There's Jesus' unique position. He says, all right, I want to tell you something. Jesus steps on the scene and says, all right, I want to tell you something. No one knows anything about God except me. All right? Second, no one knows anything about me, really, except God. And I'll be happy to share it with you. I'll be happy to reveal God to you. So it's merciful to God, for God to provide a way, but it's also serious because Jesus is the only way. According to Jesus, a person's eternal destiny is determined by their relationship with him. Whoever acknowledges me before men, Jesus says, I'll acknowledge before my Father in heaven. Whoever disowns me before men, I'll also disown before my Father in heaven. Anyone, Jesus said, who loves father or mother or their family or their own life, more than they love me is not worthy of me. See, listen, Jesus is no like no other religious teacher in the world. John Stott presents the contrast when he says, quote, Other religious leaders are self-effacing. Jesus is self-advancing. Other religious leaders point away from themselves and say, That is the truth. So far as I perceive it, follow that. Jesus says, I'm the truth. Follow me. The founder of no other world religion has ever dared say to such a thing, and that's why he was crucified. So what kind of man would so audaciously insist upon such absolute allegiance? 
It's because he's not a man. Merely. He is a man. Fully man. But he's not merely a man. He is God in the flesh. He did not give us the option of merely thinking about him as a good moral teacher. So if we think Jesus is a good moral teacher, Jesus would say, wait, I didn't say that. I didn't give you that option. You can't take that. You either call me crazy and you crucify me. You see me as a public threat and you crucify me. Or you bow in worshipful allegiance. That's it. Those are the only two options. Because that's the only two options he received when he was walking on the earth. Those are the only two responses. He did get some indifference. But that indifference was just massed hostility. It wasn't like, well, I really don't understand Jesus that well. It was that they didn't want to understand Jesus. They didn't want to get close to him. Jesus is, in the language of Philippians 2, the one who became man and took on flesh and humbled himself to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And therefore, it says, God highly exalted him and raised him up and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The question is, when will you do it? And if it's after death, it's too late. If there was another way for God to save us, other than by sending his son Jesus Christ to live a perfect life in our place and die on the cross for the sins of those who would trust him, don't you think he would have done it? I mean, Jesus in the garden, right, even asked if there was another way. That this cup, this this taking in of the wrath of God into his body and soul on the cross, if there was another way that God could assuage his wrath from his rebellious creatures and accept them into his favor, into his family as sons and daughters. There was another way that could happen. Let it be done. But Jesus went from that garden to the gallows. And both God the Son and God the Father endured the cross together. Because the Father is giving up his Son to take his wrath And the son is giving himself over to the father to endure his wrath. And the son giving up his own life. And the father giving up his own son so that we could be rescued from eternal death. From judgment, from sin, from hell. To eternal favor and bliss and joy and happiness in his presence forever. Is it any wonder then that Jesus says to the spiritually hungry, I'm the bread of life. He says to the spiritually thirsty... Let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. To those groping for what life is all about, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. To those who live under stress and anxiety, Jesus says, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. To those who feel like they can do nothing of value, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he'll bear much fruit. Your, your story's not done yet. Get connected to Christ. To those who fear death, Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will never die. To those looking for spiritual direction, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the gate. Come to me. I'm the door. And so this morning, what I want to do is commend to you the reasonable 
the inclusive, the merciful, and exclusive way of Jesus Christ. And if you are here this morning and you have never received Christ, or maybe you had and time has shown that it was a false profession of faith, maybe it was emotionally driven, maybe it was you felt pressure from the youth group or your parents or whatever, but time has shown over the decades that you've just you've never you've never surrendered your life to the Lordship of Christ. I want to invite you to do that right now. In your seat, you don't have to come to the floor, there's nothing magic about these steps. You can, in your place right now, in your seat, bow your head, and you can confess this truth to God, that there is no other way except the way that you have provided through your son, Jesus Christ. And I humbly ask that you would be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus will save you. And he will take you into his family, and he will start transforming your life little by little. Because he's a good shepherd. And he doesn't throw all kinds of stuff and burdens on you right away. He just says, repent of sin. Repent of that thing that I'm putting my finger on right now in your life. And saying, you need to give that up. And for the most part, you know what that is? That's me. I need to give me up. I need to give my selfish way up. I need to give my selfish ambition and my determination to live for myself. And do what I self. And call my own shots. I need to give that up. And that's what we give to Christ. And then Christ, by his sheer grace and mercy, the moment we turn from our sin and entrust ourselves to him, he gives us an even greater gift. He says, I'll take out of that, out of your hands, what you're giving me right now, which is your sinful, disobedient, rebellious life. And here's what I'm going to give you. I'm going to give you my perfect, obedient life. I'm going to say, here, you take that and you hold on to that. Here, son, give me that shirt. Give me that shirt. It's dirty. It looks like sin. It's full of unrighteousness. Give me that shirt. That's going in the laundry to be burned forever because I took that. Here, take my shirt, and it's clean, and it's perfect. So that now when God looks upon you, you're in Jesus' gear now. You're in Jesus' gear. you got a shirt that's a perfect righteousness. So that when God looks at you, he's like, wait, take off that shirt. Okay, that's Bill. All right, put that shirt back on. I thought you were Jesus for a minute. Isn't that amazing? He sees more of Christ in us than he even sees us. He treats us like he treats his son. In all of our sin and all of our filthiness. And I mean, what, what love? How can we spurn such a Savior? And Christian, let your heart be melted by that reality again. Get saved all over again this morning up in here. Know what I'm saying? <laughs> There's a little bit of preaching coming out right there. And I don't mean that theologically, okay? You can't get saved all over again, all right? If you're saved, you're saved. But I mean, let the mercy and grace and love of Jesus warm you afresh this morning. And head into this week knowing that you have a merciful and faithful high priest who meets you in your weaknesses, who cares for you in your needs, and is going to carry you all the way to heaven. Worship team, come forward. There's no more appropriate way than for us to respond in a few moments in song. So let me close in prayer. And you deal with Jesus however you need to deal with him this morning. And tell somebody about it. Tell a friend. Tell a brother, sister. Um, get in your community group. If you don't have one, we can connect you to one. But just tell, tell, talk to each other about what Christ is doing in your life. And share that with each other. And, um, and may Christ move as he desires. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for you. 
We thank you for yourself and all that you are to us, for the way that you have humbled yourself and taken our responsibility for us to obey the law of God. We have utterly failed. All of us in this room get big F minuses. If there were a grade lower than Fs, we would have it. All of us. And yet, Lord Jesus, you have lived in our place in such a way that you've earned the A+. You obeyed God the Father in every way. And you took your A-plus life and you exchanged it for our F-minus life on the cross. And you say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden by your sin, and I'll give you rest. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for caring for us, for loving us. Father, thank you for expressing your love for us and sending the Son. Holy Spirit, thank you for loving us because you take up residence in our life when we believe. That's amazing. You live in us as sinful people. We're redeemed, but we're sinful. And Holy Spirit, you have made us your home. And we thank you. We thank you for the ways that you have expressed your Trinitarian love for us, God. And for all that that means for us now and our passage through this world and all it will mean for us as we move into eternity. Even so, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would continue to save and advance your mission. We long to see your churches full. We long to see you gather all of your people to yourself so that with one tongue, with one voice, in one place, on a renewed earth, we might sing and celebrate the glory of your grace and your kindness toward us forever and ever. We pray all this in your name. Amen.